Welcome back to Property Matters on iProperty Radio with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on social media at iProperty Radio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. So coming up today, we have a continuation of our Breaking Ground series, Meet the Leaders. And I chat to Jim Gallagher of Altu Architects. Jim, you're very welcome and thank you for joining us. Good morning, Carol. Thank you very much for the invitation. I, no, I'm delighted. Um, and actually, your your brand has been coming up a lot in media and social media over the last number of months because there's been a fantastic rebrand, which we're going to get to. But let's start out. I've mentioned there Alto Architects. You are, in fact, an architect and you with more than 30 years experience in the industry. So you might just give our audience an introduction to maybe who you are and how you got into architecture. Yes, absolutely. Well, I suppose architecture... Um, doesn't run in the family. It was uh, I was I, I grew up and was educated in Glasgow, uh, and um, at school I loved arts, um, maths, and uh, techie drawing, uh, the technical drawing side. And I I, I attended a, a, a careers fair. Uh, I think I was about fourteen, and just saw this grizzled architect who was probably frazzled at the time, um, talking about house extensions. And uh, but he came across with such passion. I just said, "That's what I would like to do." Completely naive. I knew nothing about it. I didn't know any architects. In fact, when I uh, applied to go to Strathclyde University, architecture was my number one, and naval architecture was my number two. So, um, not not a clue. Uh, and uh, got in there, made friends for life. Um, got through the course. Uh, some high points, some low points, uh, and then. Uh, when I qualified, I, I uh, myself and a, a buddy of mine uh, went to uh, London. Uh, and I suppose that's where the Irish connection starts because we, we crashed on some very dubious floors until we found our own apartment um, of, of pals we'd met in the States for, when we worked over there for the summer. And um, I worked in London for seven years for a very large practice and a very small practice. My boss went out his own. Uh, you know, so I went from a practice of 300 staff in the, beside Hyde Park uh, and uh, my 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 boss Fraser Picotti went out on his own. It was a two man practice and a dog, and one of us had to take the dog out for a walk at lunchtime. That's a big change to go from three hundred to two. Yeah, but it was great. It gave you a bit of a round of all sorts that you were um, you know you were in the city centre practice, you know greens grass, and then you were into things that clients would only meet at eight o'clock at night because they were discussing discussing a house extension, um, and there was a bit of commercial work there. So. Overall, I was seven years in London um, and um, moved to Ireland. Uh, my wife's from Dublin. So once we get married, uh, we moved here actually 25 years ago this week. Um, we and, and started in Cantrell Crowley, um, a practice in the south side, and I was there for six years and then um, moved to Lafferty, uh, you know, the Lafferty Group, uh, which was Lafferty um, project managers and Lafferty architects. Uh, in 2003 um, and I've, they've not managed to get rid of me yet. Yeah, well, again, these are these are some iconic names that you're talking about there. But you know, I want to just touch on something purely because earlier this month we've had um, Women in Engineering, Women in Construction and International Women's Day. And, you know, one of the points that came up was really how people choose the careers they choose. And you talk about, you know, um, enjoying subjects like technical drawing. Um, can you remember... Would there have been any diversity in the class during for your 
technical no, drawing? No, I went to co-ed school, uh, a comprehensive in, in, um, uh, in Glasgow, and uh, absolutely not, not in technical drawing. The, I think, unfortunately, I was, you know, I was back in the day where uh, all the girls went and did uh, domestic, whatever, you know. Yeah. You know, and no, we did I, I, domestic I, education and we went and did technical drawing and uh, the lads that couldn't do technical drawing, they put in the woodwork and gave them lump hammers. So it was... Um, yeah. You know, probably, you know, so it, it was a, a very different day. But when we started in my course, I think it was about 30 of us, and I would say a third, um, a, a third were female. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, that, that probably, no, there's, there's a huge attrition rate in architecture. Uh, and 30 was a nice number, um, and we, you know, managed to get still in touch with, with a good few of the, the guys. Yeah, yeah. I think what's really interesting about that is that um, uh, uh, obviously the month we've had where we reflect on how people choose their careers and how do we achieve um, diversity. And just when you talk about at 14 years of age going to a careers fair and actually being exposed to architects and things like that, you know, that's something that's so influential. Um, but actually just this weekend, I have recently... I've recently discovered the joy of woodworking, having not been able to do anything. And so I'm driving the guys down our local lumberyard absolutely crazy because I know nothing. And yeah. I'm amazed at how much knowledge they have about really small things. And, yes. and so I've actually started asking them, where did you learn that? And they say, well, like, you know, first year in woodwork or something in, oh. in secondary school. And, and so I realized all oh, these little skills like, um, you know, using sand uh, uh, sawdust to actually yes. fill cracks, you know, to get the coloring right and things like that. And it's like, how, how do you learn things like that? And these are things that are so basic. 13 and 14 and 15 year old boys know them and yet women don't. And then we're surprised. So actually talk to me then about the attrition rate for architecture. Do you see coming from your generation, was that equal for men and for women? Like, would the attrition rate be equal across both genders? Yeah, yes, it would have been. It was, um, I think it's a course that's a, a very particular course. You have to have a passion for it. Uh, and it's a long course. So unless you're, you know, probably in the first year, that's where most people will fall out. that aren't going to last the, the course. And then, of course, there's so many pitfalls over the seven years that some people will take an extra year or take a couple of years out uh, before doing the second degree. Um, and then you've got your professional uh, practice examination at the end. And some people leave that for 10 years before they do it. I mean, I was lucky enough that I just got the head down and, oh, the, trust me, there were stumbles along the way, but just did it as fast as I possibly could uh, to, to get it behind me. But, um, you know, look, I had fantastic mentors at the time, particularly when I started in practice because uh, I knew nothing. Uh, still learning all the time, but um, you, you you learn from some just some brilliant people, you know, and that's that's a great thing. There's a great curiosity, I think, in uh, in design and architecture, and people are curious and want to want to tell you things. And equally, as you were saying there about craftsmen, I think it's it's, it's important, you know, in whatever um, walk of life you do, that there are people that have huge experience and it's learning those those tricks and those tips and uh, and lessons. Um, Jim, 30 years, I mean, you, and that's since you've been in the industry, but you're talking about a passion that started when you were a teenager. Have you ever considered a, um, a career move out of architecture? I, I think it'd be fairly useless anywhere else, Carol, to be perfectly honest. You haven't found me out here yet, so I think I'll stay, I'll keep going. Yeah, I, I don't believe that for a minute, Jim, but no, I, I think it's amazing to be able to not just keep the passion for your your not just career but kind of what you've chosen to do your mission in life but it's actually 
to evolve alongside it? Because obviously we mm. see that architecture has evolved in, say, in terms of not just uh, the tools and the technologies, but actually in terms of the projects and the scale of the projects. So maybe talk me through some of your early projects. I mean, you're talking about a, a seven year route to qualification and you're saying you came out and you knew nothing. Now yeah, I, I, and, and, and still probably learn no less and less as I go on, but um, you do as you just have brilliant people with you. And I think actually there's a huge thing about graduates and, and, and the youth coming through because there's a huge passion and the drive there uh, and great learnings. You can learn as well. I mean, I um, my first project was possibly still one of my, well, definitely one of my favourites. Uh, and it was a 100,000 um, square foot uh, R&D facility. Um, for um, a diagnostic company in North Wales. It was right on the foot of Snowdon. It was in an old slate quarry. And um, it just was magnificent. I used to go down once a month for a two-day site visit. I uh, travelled the five and a half hours from, from London. Uh, and, and I absolutely adored it. And um, I did my part three project on it. And I remember the, the external examiners asked me because I was so positive on D&B, design and build, and they, were, they had enough experience to be cynical about the whole thing. And I was talking about collaboration and how when the contractor and the design team and everyone's work and the client are all working together, how um, that collaborative approach can, can be far more rewarding, um, present better end results and such. And these lads are saying, well, you are joking about this, aren't you? Uh, they just, they've been through it. But to, to be fair, um, okay, there might have been a bit of, sorry, might have been a huge dose of naivety there. But it was something that... Um, has stuck with me. I think if we can collaborate as an industry, uh, we will definitely get better results um, through there. That's everyone has to do their job and uh, and bring their own skill set to it. But um, you know, equally as good clients make good buildings, so do good contractors and good design teams. You know, I, there's so much of what you've said there. I, I want to unpack and deal with separately, but and I, I'm going to jump the order here. Integrated project delivery is something that is now hmm. being touted as a route to success. Um, but how is that different to the collaboration that you're talking about kind of 25 years ago? Oh, well, when I when I started off, um, there, there was no CAD. It was in its infancy, effectively. Uh, I remember, actually, the first practice I worked for, they, they had a CAD machine that cost 35000 sterling. Uh, and one guy was sent away for a, a fortnight to get trained on it. It looked like something out of the Starship Enterprise. Nobody else could use it. And uh, of course, he was poached by a window sub uh, manufacturer within within about six months. So they lost all that knowledge, and this thing gathered dust in the corner. But um, and then when I moved to London, it was um, the, the the CAD system was like a typing pool. Nobody had PCs. This is 1990. So you went up and you brought your your it was double handing. You brought your drawings up to the CAD guys, and they actually ran in three shifts because the machines were so expensive. And uh, you know the guys came at six in the morning through to two, and then to, and it was. No, good bunch of bunch of guys, and um, and it was only really, I suppose, the mid nineties that PCs came in, and um, we all started getting into CAD, and uh, we, you know, at, at uh, what was Lafferty Architects and now is Alto Architects, we um, uh, get into BIM. Actually, it was one of our Polish colleagues um, was working in ArchiCAD, and he brought a probably an illegal program back in two thousand and six uh, over and started working there, and some of our own guys were very curious about it. And started building. So we and we um, when the recession hit. In sorry, I'm jumping about, but this is we'll get back to that collaboration point. We uh, we invested very heavily in 2012 as a point of difference. When I say we invested very heavily, it was the last scrapings of the piggy bank uh, back then. 
and we, we brought them across the board, across the practice. Now, we had gone from, I think, just over 80 staff down to 16 staff at the time, so it was a much easier task to train everyone up, and we brought in external trainers, and um, we exclusively work in BIM. Uh, and that really is um, a fantastic collaboration tool um, through the design process, the planning process, the detailed design process, and the construction delivery process. Uh, I mean, we have clients that um, can use the BIMX program on there to go on their iPad. They can show their stakeholders, uh, funders, um, you know, how things are developing, how it looks. Um, but really, it's a, just a great data collaboration piece. Uh, and with that, you find a much more collaborative piece. I mean, one of the, the um, we were doing a design and build job about three or four years ago, uh, and the contractor, um, he embraced BIM as well. And the, the, the actual design team meetings with the contractor and subcontractors on board where we're virtually working through the model and solving the problems before they hit site. Fantastic. You know, and, and that's been around for a long time, but the, the industry just needs to embrace it more. Uh, it needs to be supported more by government to do this and then coupled with um, with more innovative ways of uh, construction delivery, such as offsite construction and such. Do you see that that's happening now? Because I, I suppose I, I'm... I'm looking at kind of the initiatives where we are now in 2022, but when you introduced this um, across the board back in 2012, uh, you talk about it being a point of difference, but I would imagine it's not just a point of difference in terms of your service offering. Did this in some way shape the type of clients that wanted to work with you? And possibly not all positive. Did this, some clients not in favor of this? No, absolutely. We um, because client. I mean, initially, what we we do not do is we you know we do market rates. We don't charge. This is what we do for BIM. This is what we don't do. We just do BIM as default. And uh, yes, there would be you know maybe some of the uh, sorry. There was one instance where a client, and I had to speak to him so many times. It was a very large project, and he his suspicion was BIM was slowing things down. And it was because other uh, design team members weren't embracing it the same way or were going through the back channels and saying, oh, this is crazy. You don't really know what this BIM is doing. But once we, once um, uh, his eyes were open to what it was delivering and what we were doing, he could see the benefits of this. But, I mean, there's no doubt back in 2012, uh, there was a, the, the phrase was lonely BIM, and we were lonely BIMers. Uh, back then. Now, it's a tool at the end of the day. It's no different to when, I mean, when I started off, you had tracing paper and a razor blade. Uh, um, to, 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 to correct um, errors on drawings uh, and dye line machines with that, that lovely, lovely distinctive smell. Um, so, it, look, I, I think they're, they're all tools. Uh, I think we are we're fantastic people in this industry. Uh, and I, I don't think, you know, you need to be a zealot or a passionate person about the tool you use. It's just a, a, method, of, a method of delivering a, a better communicative and collaborative um, uh, process and approach to work. Are you surprised that the Irish government were so far behind the UK government, say, in mandating BIM for public projects? No, no, I'm not surprised. I, I was at a, a, a talk where the and it was a government, sorry, some minister of public procurement in, a, I think it was around about 2014 or something, and the government, the UK government were bringing in mandatory tier two, BIM level tier two, I think, uh, or level two, sorry, um, in 2016. And the question was put to, to him. I don't remember who he was. And I'm not, I wouldn't name him anyway. But he said that they wouldn't be bringing BIM into government contracts because it was, um, 
what it was it wasn't creating a level playing field because some companies don't um, don't have it, so that would be a problem. So really, what we were doing was saying, let's not innovate, let's go to the lowest common denominator, and we'll take it there. So no, I'm not surprised. Um, I look, I, I think there's certain things that are very good in enabling about um, a, you know tools such as BIM, and then there's other things that you're if you're doing just as a process and a system, then don't do it. Uh, nowhere is good. I mean, we, we haven't yet been able to take it into the FM stage of buildings, which of course it's made for, but um, very few clients will update that model, embrace it, keep it going. But I think more and more as the, the environment uh, has to come into play, sustainability, how buildings operate, then I, I think that that will just absolutely be mandatory um, through there. But uh, look, I, I, I mean, very much have been a case. I, mean, I, I sit in the Council of Property Industry Ireland, and many times we have we've written, uh, and, and I did chair the Construction Innovation Policy Group, and uh, we wrote papers and wrote to government. And there's some great bodies out there like CETA, as well, that are doing a lot of good work in this area. It'll get there, but it'll get there as it becomes the the norm. But as far as I'm aware, there's not. Um, I mean, we've never received a grant for the hundreds of thousands we've spent on on this purely because we think it makes us do a job more efficiently. Yeah, obviously we're seeing um, the the construction innovation group and a couple of subcommittees under that. Uh, we've got the uh, Build Digital, you know, you've mentioned CETA. Is there an overly academic leaning to our to trying to get the industry to embrace technology? Because it seems to me a lot is being done um, but it's been done by academics and I'm not seeing it filtering down in the industry. Now, obviously, yeah. you're, you're at the coalface there, so maybe you have a different perspective. I think it's I think it's difficult because we're all trying to hit a, missing, uh, you know, hit a moving target. I mean, we're in a very cyclical industry um, and nobody really rests in the laurels. Uh, margins aren't high uh, in the industry either in terms of reinvestment. Um, if you're a very large company, it's very difficult because what do you do? Do you stand down 200 architects? and do no projects while you try and train them up or you do it in sections. If you're a very small business, how do you invest? Um, I, I suppose we were fortunate that as we grew and, and, and evolved, I mean, we, we started off when of the 16 in the practice, there was only eight architects at that time back in 2012, I think. Um, and we had could be, just because we were hit with the recession with everyone else, we kept going, but we had to keep, keep letting air out of the balloon, unfortunately. And, um, and as we grew up again to our current um, 35 staff, what we do is we bring people in. We're not looking for people who can use BIM. We're looking for really talented architects and technologists and bring them in and we'll train them up and we'll just enable really good people to, to work to their, their, their peak, hopefully. Uh, actually, this might be a good point for us to um, to really talk about the rebranding um you know, restructuring, rebranding exercise there that uh, Altu Architects has just gone through because I, I'm conscious that we're kind of jumping from brand to brand and just, I suppose, really to show the line of continuity there. So um, Altu, the new brand, was launched earlier this year. Was it February? That's correct. That was in February, Carol. Yeah, we... You might just talk us through kind of the how how and why that happened. Yes, absolutely. Well, we, we, we uh, as I say, we were formed 25 years ago, actually, as the Lafty Design Group. Uh, and that principally was um, architects and project managers. And since about 2014, uh, as we were growing again, we set up two distinct management teams because we're different disciplines, you know, under one board uh, and, and really strong governance from, from our chair, chairman, um, uh, Bernie Cullinan. 
Um, so, so we had a really good governance to, to set with them, the independent management teams. And uh, it was back in 2018 as we were doing our business, our next three-year business uh, plan, uh, we realised um, that it was, we actually had two very different visions for the business because we were different disciplines. And we got to the stage that we realised that um, to enable both uh, disciplines to grow and both businesses to grow, we had to separate. You know, very amicable, you know, conscious uncoupling, I think was the phrase uh, in, in the side. But, um, and the, they, they've retained the Lafferty brand and we were Lafferty Architects while we were going through the uh, rebranding process. And we went on, uh, on a journey, had some really good support from brand companies such as The Pudding, um, great um, media uh, backup and, and think from, from, from Bold Media, uh, good website designers as, as well. Uh, and that name will come to me or I'll be, I'll be killed. But anyway, um, uh, the, the really um, strong thing, but it took a year. It took us a year to come with the right brand, the right name, one that's very reflective of us as a, an architectural design practice. Um, because although there was a lot of good legacy with the Lafferty name, it was the right time to change. Uh, and we've done it with the blessing of Pat Lafferty, who it was called after. And I think it was very important for us as well to, to find a brand that, that's not only reflective of our, as our identity, but everybody within the practice can, can work into. So we've been very fortunate with strong feedback. You know, um, there is Latin meaning, for, meaning behind the Altu name, but I won't go there because a lot of the guys are saying, I'm not going to use that. It's very embarrassing. But ultimately, Altu Architecture has a very nice ring to it. Well, it's well, tell us, talk, talk us through that. Yeah, well, the, the Altu, we came, well, we, we, we kicked about a lot of names and we tried to resist uh, ourselves going down that route, but we, we eventually rounded back to, as a bunch of creatives doing it. Um, I think it was one of our, it was one of my colleagues, Dara, who came up with the Altu name and we kind of reverse engineered the, the meaning to it because, um, you know, the Altus is, is Latin to, to foster, to nurture and to develop, which is the things we do and is very reflective of us. So we, we took it to the um, to Altu um, as, as a piece there um, with fantastic graphic designers uh, that the Pudding had put us in, in touch with that uh, took the brand piece. We had brilliant work done by our colleagues in-house. And I think that's the important thing with the branding. You can't just pay someone, go away and do that and, and, be, and be very surprised. It doesn't reflect anything that you stand for. Um, so we had, you know, although we... Um, we, we, we had kind of client ownership over two of our colleagues, Jack Byrne and Claire Healy, who are associate directors in the practice and very creative people in the own right, spent thousands of hours on this, working with the brand companies and taking it through. And then we had workshops with the wider group. And I suppose what really surprised us was we had um, actually quite uncanny and quite spooky alignment across the board. We, drew, we broke up into groups. It was all done in teams, obviously, with covid um, but we broke up into groups and not only did we come, come back with the exact same vision for the company, but we came back with it in the right, the same order, the different groups. And well, let, let's, let's kind of get as specific as we can about that then. What is the vision for Altu? Well, I think ultimately it boils down to, rather than using the, the names that any company can grab in or the buzzwords, I think ultimately we just want to create, you know, we want to create a great legacy of, of, of built work um, that for people that will get a positive experience from enjoying it and will contribute to the environment as well. Um, I mean, that's, that's simply what it boils down to. Um, it's what we do. And fine, we, we build that on great sound business fundamentals so that everyone awake can not worry about, you know, um, paying for shoes next month. And we can then actually concentrate on 
the creative aspect of our work and uh, and, and um, making you know making sure our projects um, can be the best they possibly can be. You know, uh, one thing that whenever I speak to leaders across uh, really any facets of the built environment, there's there is almost always this driving passion to create something better, to to build mm. better, to create something that is legacy worthy. And so for me, I find it genuinely difficult when um, the reputation of the entire industry is being, I, I suppose, being bandied about in such a negative way mm. and in such a flippant way as well, not understanding maybe the consequences that that has on people choosing this as a career, people yes. tr- trusting the industry, people actually rolling behind and taking the time to understand the vision uh, for projects that are trying to be created. You know, and I think that's something that is that has been a problem for a while. I think it was absolutely compounded by the crash and um, a lot of the media reporting around that. And by the way, obviously some of that was justified um, and arguably some of it wasn't. But it felt like we were getting onto an even keel where projects were being um, almost evaluated on their quality up until a few years ago when, um, you know, where we really started to see affordability issues kick in. We started to see project overruns become very public. We started to see new developments being blocked uh, by members of the community and and members, uh, people who weren't members of the community um, through judicial review. And we know that that they've increased, I mean, over a certain period of time, it was increasing a thousand percent. So these are all problems that can be, you know, can be linked to the industry having a, a reputational problem. Um, and going through a bit of an identity crisis uh, externally. And I think it's really interesting when we see companies rebrand because actually what they're trying to do is almost an individual of what the industry as a collective has to do. So, you know, you mentioned there that um, your work with uh, Property Industry Ireland uh, and some of the other some of the other bodies that are trying to collectively raise the the reputation of the industry where do you see that at the moment because you've 30 years experience um how the, the public perception of this industry where do you think it is right now oh well, I, I don't think it's great i think it's definitely better than it was um just immediately post crash because i think the whole narrative was about um everyone was out there you know we were all on the bus driving over the cliff at the time it is a, an industry that that um, gets hammered. I think it gets hammered in the media. I think um, also the fact you see with the JR that you mentioned, uh, I mean, that's not put out there in the world. You know, that media narrative isn't out there just now. This is homes for people. Um, you know, there, there, there's there, there's a huge amount of different elements that go into cost. Everything's going the wrong way in terms of cost just now. And you get a few highlighted projects, which admittedly should never have happened, the priory halls of this world and various things where you, you have people that were not doing the job properly. Um, I, I think what we have to do is build on the, the fact that BCAR is a positive thing um, because the self-regulation, I came over here in 2000, sorry, 1997, and I went, self-regulation, what's that self-regulation about? Really? You know, and you only had, you didn't go through all the aspects of building control with the building control officer. You did a fire set. And I found that quite alien um, that you were signing off on your own work. Um, and the B car, I know, was a difficulty for everyone. And it's still elements of it that are very unwieldy, but it's better than nothing. I mean, in reality, the Scottish system, and we did a, a bit of work up in Scotland um, a few years ago, 
and it's the local authority that that take the building control onus and they sign off effectively. So they're inspecting. And it's of course it's difficult to get things through, and you've got to actually have all your ducks to roll before you start on site, and it takes longer, and there's cost to it. But once you do that, there is um, there, there, there is surety there. There is a, a greater degree and perception of this is built right. Uh, now I, I think you've got really talented people and really committed and people of integrity within our industry, uh, and um, you know, and, and we've got some of the best, you know. To, you know, if you even look at some of the architects we have, we have world leaders in architects, whether it be Grafton or O'Donnell and Toomey, and you know, hopefully eventually L2, but we might be we're a few years off that. But just in terms of, um, I, I think it's, a, it's something we have to keep chipping away at through the bodies. We have to get that trust back. Um, the JR, I think, is up, as I say, it's absolutely. Um, it's unconscionable what's happening just now about how homes are there. And there is a, a real body of people that don't want to see homes being delivered for political um, capital. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and you even look at the, the cost of construction. There's only so many things can be done by um, contractors or developers and the cost of construction because we are at the end of a food chain. You know, and um, there is a cost of labour, there's various things, but when over 50% are in non-construction costs, such as tax, land costs, um, other elements there. And then you get the JR processes that you, you, you mentioned, Carol, um, and a, a few ambulance chasers out there um, rallying up this thing. The judiciary should have no part in this. 93.9, Dublin South FM. I would think, though, on the judicial review, I, I genuinely believe the system is broken. So I don't think actually at this point we can blame the community. Um, no, no. You're absolutely right. I think there are political agendas that don't want to see these problems mm. solved. Um, however, one thing I would say is that when we meet with community groups, they genuinely don't believe they have any other choice. And the reality is, um, I, I think what really surprises the community to learn is that Actually, this process, uh, this process that gives rise to the community feeling they, their only course or recourse is judicial review, to learn that that doesn't serve the developers either or that it no. doesn't serve the industry. And I, I just, I marvel at, at um, a process that doesn't serve anyone that it's supposed to serve, uh, yes. how it continues, how is it sustained. Bec- and look, obviously, I know the changes are coming and that it's not. The, the plan is not for for it not to be sustained. But the reality is, I think that we have an overly political influence on our housing in a way that political cycles are relatively short compared to yes. making cycles. And yeah. I think that's such a problem. And it's such a, it, so it's, it's vesting the wrong political interests in the wrong place. No, correct. I think there should be the profession the, the professional planning lot body should be left to do this because you, you then are looking at decades in, in planning as happens in other countries, um, as opposed to what, what gets the votes on the doors tomorrow. Um, because I mean in reality what we're doing is we're cheating the generation coming through. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, when I moved to Ireland, I, I actually, 1st of April 1997, and I bought a house on the 2nd of April 1997. Uh, I, I think it was just stupid luck, whatever, you know, the first house up in the gallops. Um, but that's not open to that generation. Not, you know, in, in the likes of my, fine, if maybe you're a, a great software engineer or something, it can be, but, but not for the majority of, um, you know, professions and jobs out there. Yeah. I, and I, I just think it's wrong. I just think it's wrong. 
you know, uh, there are so many broken parts of the system. We already we know that elements are being looked at. Obviously, we want them to be looked at together. I have consistently maintained that I don't believe there's enough private sector influence actually in the in going into the policy making and the the procedural side of it. However, I am I, I seem to be unique in my hopefulness about um, Ireland's new housing commission. You know, I, I'm genuinely optimistic about it. I seem to be the only person who is, but I, I genuinely am because I think. You know, it's been led by John O'Connor, who has been a very mm. strong civil servant and a very balanced and fair civil servant. Um, you know, and we've got uh, Michael O'Flynn on the commission, who I think is a strong. I'm, I'm a great fan. I'm a great fan of Michael's. Yeah. Who, who isn't? You know, I you know, I, I think he's done some objectively excellent mm. work. Um, so therefore, he's he's really contributed to this industry. But other than that, it's all academic and public sector so yeah. is one private private sector voice enough to steer what is essentially supposed to steer an entire built environment yeah it's it, it's difficult and as i say it's come back to hitting that as a business you're trying to hit the next moving target again as opposed to you know large investment in the, uh, in, i mean even if you look at the margins of contractors and stuff they're all very tight and it needs to work but then that leads us into an adversarial um you know, contractual side where nobody can come together uh, and work. But look, I think it's it's like the housing crisis is multifaceted. We're not you know, going to sort it out on a Monday morning, but um, it is. And it, you know what? When you talk about that, I you know straight away my my mind is going to the uh, public procurement and the fixed price contracts. But I'm not going to take hmm. it down that direction today because again. You know, oh, there's better people than me that can 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 opinion on that. Yeah. Well, do you know what? Actually, I I think the the crux of the matter is we need all experienced yes. voices feeding into this. But um, but let's take it back to the projects that Altu is facing at the moment. You, know, you mentioned the team there, thirty five yeah. people on the team. What projects do you have on the uh, on the horizon that you can talk about that you're excited about? Yeah, well, we've got a, a very nice balance uh, of projects and and. You know, what gives me a buzz is, is is working with people and working with really positive, talented people. Uh, and I'm lucky that they're all more talented than I am anyway. Uh, and, and you see there, this is the best team I've worked with in over 30 years uh, just now. And, and I think the, the Altu brand has given us all a new energy as well. We've moved into uh, offices in Camden Street. So, um, you know, we need to make sure we don't have the sore heads in the morning as well because it's a great buzz around the place uh, into there. But... Um, I, I think the, the projects that we're working on um, just now, we've, we've, we've very carefully targeted a balance. Uh, I mean, we, we obviously residential is persuasive at the moment. It's everywhere. Um, and, and we're doing a lot of high-density schemes for fantastic clients um, across there. And, and some of them are large master planning schemes going into planning schemes um, just now. And really good, very well um, knowledgeable clients that are building really strong, skilled teams that are working with you through this. Um, so, so that's that's great, you know. And, and we're, you know, I mean, I think we've got something eight thousand homes on our books at the moment through various stages. Uh, some just delivered, some on site, and the majority in planning or detailed design. Um, but we're what's nice is a lot of that is mixed use. We're doing it not just, you know, here's an apartment development on its own were elements of the urban centres around there as well and, and kind of urban villages in, in some of the things we're taking. We're, um, we traditionally would have done a lot of commercial work, uh, both in office and retail. So we're still, um, you know, working in Dundrum Town Centre. We, um, 
uh, delivered the Pembroke, some of the projects in the Pembroke uh, district there just now. The, uh, the, um, the Donnybrook Fair have moved into the new square there. That was a nice project because of a bit of placemaking and creating an external aspect to, to the centre, which Lafty were involved with um, the, the project management arm um, 20 odd years ago. Um, so, so we're, uh, we're 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 working on I think even the BTS. Although we didn't do the fit out, we did the the shell of that. So, and then we're doing some great work out in Lanchestown, the Square, Pavilion. So we still do a fair bit of and Black Rock Shopping Centre. We've done a nice, beautiful job there. Actually, very architectural um, with the office building. Doing a lot in offices as well. Um, one of the nice projects that my colleague Oliver uh, and his team delivered was the um, Enterprise House, which is now Zurich House in Black Rock. So that uh, was a rebuild of a 1984 office building, demolished it and uh, and, and brought it to 85,000 square feet of grade A office. And it's um, often a super project, great looking crisp building. There's a lovely range of projects there across sectors. Um, so it's in terms of the office, I'm interested. There's so much speculation and, and commentary about mm. what the future of work will likely look like. And, you know, again, it's still very early to be having that conversation. But what kind of trends are you picking up on from, um, you know, because you describe your clients as knowledgeable, um, mm. you know, so what kind of trends are they foreseeing um, in the office? And, and well, I, I, I think the experience of the office is, is critically important. I mean, after two years working from home almost, um, with, with intermittent bits in between, um, you know, the, the getting back to the culture of having an office, to having the, the you know, even the socialization. Uh, I mean, we know all a bit about the collaboration and everyone in together. I mean, we um, we only only moved into Camden Street last week because the, the fit out is, um, was only <laughs> cobbler's children. We were a month late waiting for lighting and all sorts going on. Um, but the buzz uh, coming back, but what we're doing is we're taking, and I, and I think we would be probably representative of a lot of the industry. We actually found a lot of positives working remotely. We actually went off for a test day on the 13th of March, 2020. And we, we, we flagged a week before, well, we're going to go and work at home as a test day. And of course, events of that week um, happened very quickly. And we never went back to the office for another almost 18 months. And um, but we found out we didn't skip a beat, uh, and it's into a lot of investment in technology, a lot of um, because we're working in BIM, we're working in an integrated federated model, which we have a Polish office. So the, the team in Poland are working on the same projects we're working on in the same model in the real time. So and effectively, you could say we were working remotely um, for there. Equally, we found staff that we had, brilliant staff we had that had gone home for. Pregnancy, got home to rear children. We've got one great colleague in Bulgaria, and she went back, and she's now joined us again part time, uh, working from Bulgaria, and she's plugging into teams now. She's only working for front end projects, but we've been able to take talented staff back again, um, which is which has been great. Um, so I think the hybrid thing is certainly something we want to embrace. Uh, so I think a lot of companies will probably go for higher quality space. Um, better locations. I mean, we've, we've we've moved into the city centre and paying higher rent for less space than we would have done if we want to grow to the 50 staff we want. But we're going to do that through trying to create a, a shared experience from working remotely so people aren't commuting every day uh, and, and coming in and, and keeping it reasonably flexible and listening to staff. And I think as, as well, as I say, is that just the, the buzz and the experience of being back in the office. I know I'll be back in the office a lot more than 50% because I just enjoy it because you're walking down the street, you'll meet someone. You know, you, you, you'll, you'll have a chance meeting with clients. You're more likely to meet for a coffee, meet for a sandwich, 
um, you know, have in-house meetings. So I think there's been a, a there have been positives. The teams meetings, although they're a, a bane, it saved a lot of time instead of going for you know spending the day uh, going to Kerry for a one-hour meeting. Um, you know, you can do that in teams. Um, now you can't take off the site experience. You have to go and, and visit that. But um, th- we would have been goosed, um, absolutely goosed uh, in the recession if you know COVID had hit at the same time. Yeah. Because we didn't have that technology. Yeah. Uh, and I think it has been. If it's used as an enabler and it's blended with a, with a really strong focus on we have a community of. A team, and, and I think that's where Office will come into it. I mean, we've done a couple of large fit-outs recently um, for clients, um, and it is all about the more of the collaborative space, the um, making sure their their canteen and catering facility. Now, there's there's downsides to that as well. I mean, my um, my my uh, Kira, my wife works in the the public sector, and they have a flexible. Well, I won't mention where they have a flexible approach to attending in. And they're saying the canteen can't run a service because they're just not getting enough people in. Yeah. And I think there will be a, a bit of reluctance. And I have heard, um, you know, I, I have heard that, that, that a lot of people are finding it back. But I think if you're very rigid in saying you're in office 100% or you're working from home 100%, I think that's going to be problematic. Yeah. Yeah, to be honest, I'm I'm personally really excited about we've we've both been running um, a remote team. We're a small team. Um, so kind of we went from six and we'll be going to eight but we've always been remote and it's just kind of how it was the only difference is we've an office in Dublin but we also opened one in rural County Galway and my problem is that I fall in love with rural County Galway so I'm finding it very difficult to get back to Dublin there's a lot of cancelled meetings and uh, in-person meetings being moved to Zoom um but you're right, the, the experience is different. Now, my experience is probably the opposite to yours walking down Camden Street. I have stone walls and donkeys and a sea view, so it's not quite Camden Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a buzz, but it's There's a, a few donkeys in Camden buzz. Street. <laughs> I, I, I know that to be true. Um, but just, I, I think what's really interesting, you're describing around the commercial, um, the, the commercial projects, language that 10 and 15 years ago would have been almost exclusively used for residential where we talk about mm. experience and placemaking and community and um, so that that makes me wonder if if all of that is now being encompassed in the workplace what kind of residential trends are you seeing on the placemaking you know are you seeing any any impacts from covid that are being adopted and, and uh, adopted as trends that are likely to continue yeah, I think I think the the, the actual um, you know the passion for your area, the uh, loyalty to local, um, was a very positive piece. I mean, God, we all knew our town two two kilometres within a an inch, and then five kilometres we felt we, we lost the lost the run of ourselves. Um, but it, but I, I think there will be a lot of that. There, you know, if you get very good quality um, shops or cafes or various things, they will be supported. Um, I mean, I think it's really imperative that we do get people back into the city. Otherwise, the cities will be hollowed out. Uh, the same way they were hollowed out with residential um, 20 years ago uh, by everyone moving out, you'll actually find the businesses can't thrive because there's nobody in offices. You'll find that the FSC and various places, no, no, you know, you'll find boarded up restaurants and shops and such, and that would be a, a shame also. So there has to be a balance. Um, I think if it's a balance on people's time or if somebody clocks off at six o'clock or whatever, God, they, they can walk out to the garden. They can do that. They're not. They don't have that hour, hour and a half, um, to get home and not put the kids to bed or do. Or maybe, maybe they don't want to put the kids to bed and maybe the hour and a half's handy. But um, I think um, 
there is a quality of life to be able to do that, um, that you're not always on public transport or you're in the car, stuck in traffic. Uh, but it has to be balanced because I think we'd be a very dull society um, if we were all just talking to each other on screens. Yeah, no, um, you're absolutely right. And actually, I, I think one thing that's really exciting about kind of the wave of new, not just technologies, but um, innovation, how how we live and work feels like it's really open to change at the moment. Mm. So we have an opportunity to not just fall into uh, fall into a habit or a routine or a process. You know, we really have an opportunity to shape it in a way that maybe we haven't seen um, in, in mm. previous in previous well, decades. It's, it's similar. I mean, if you actually think of the, the, the rapid changes in, um, say, retailing, the online has brought, the rapid changes on how we live, how we work. Um, and I, I think it's all up there. And I think we can take the positives from that. I mean, I if, if, someone, if you'd come to me just over two years ago and someone had said they'd work, like to work 50% from home, I'd have kind of looked at them and said, well, I'm quite happy to pay you 50% of your salary. Uh, I, I was a dinosaur. But you you learn and you see the benefits. And... Um, I, I think it, I, I think if we take the positives from it, it you know, I, I think we can we can build better, you know, better places for us to work, um, so that when you're coming in, it's an enjoyable experience as well as being very productive. It's got to work for the company too. Yeah. Um, but I mean, we we are in a place that we can't ignore, you know, what our team want because I mean, the team ultimately in my business, my only value, and our only value as a business is Altu Architects is our team. Every a company is just the collection of its people. Um, yeah. The value that's created, but it's also kind of the the magic or the spark. You know that yeah. it's the, the bringing together of those people. Um, it, it, I genuinely am so excited to see what, how these how these impacts are going to play out. Just this morning, before we started recording here, the DAF.ie, myhome.ie, and REA, the Real Estate Alliance reports, all landed this morning on my desk and. You know, the headline figures are such that um, housing has increased 100 euros a day since the start of the year. You know, we're seeing these consistent increases. We're seeing estate agents are telling us that they have never seen such levels of undersupply. Um, the REA spokesperson was talking about uh, less, uh, fewer than 20 properties on the market um, in Killarney at the moment. And what was really surprising, well, probably shouldn't have been surprising because it actually means that all of the anecdotal commentary that we've heard over the last 18 months has actually borne out. Um, but there was a Leitrim estate agent saying that two thirds of all their sales are from people not from the area. So essentially, yeah. every time Leitrim is reported as the cheapest county in Ireland, people direct, people who are priced out of the city <laughs> direct their household. And by the way, anybody who's not familiar with Leitrim and visits it for the first time will be blown away by the beauty of it, mm. uh, by the variety of the landscape. But what really surprised me as a country that has very little coastal access, lakes everywhere. So yeah. you feel like you're by the coast as well. So um, it didn't surprise me that people it, who investigate it will fall in love with it. But we're going to have this happen all over Ireland. Yeah, it's bizarre. I mean, we're, we, we've the, the least dense, or probably the least dense population in Europe. Yet we've got the highest land costs that, that feed into a lot of the, the, the prices. If, if we don't get it right, and, and as you said, I agree with you, Carol, it's multifaceted, we, you know, and we all have to, to do it, but we are failing the generation coming up. Um, I mean, if we lose our talent because the only thing they feel is they can go to, they have to go to Australia or the Middle East or somewhere or Canada, then we lose our talent. Um, um, and but Jim, is it is it the case that if 
if value was seen more balanced across the country, that actually we might start to see affordability seep into our cities. So, for example, just in the last number of days, um, on board Planola, we're very uh, vocal that they will no longer be allowing low density housing in areas um, that in Dublin suburbs, very like within walking distance of the city centre. So the likes of uh, Sandymount and, and yes. various that they will no longer allow low density development, that actually sites have to, such prime sites have to be fully utilised. Is that something mm. you welcome? Uh, yes, I do in terms of that, because the sites, um, the question of the service land, if they're um, within good commuting uh, piece, we have to go for a density. Now, we've got to also accept the fact, that, you know, that high density development is more expensive than, you know, detached houses. Um, and, and really, that's where land values do reflect that piece that they have to, to come in. But um, I would welcome it there. I think there are inconsistencies with the consistency across the board. But in certain cases, like rural towns and such, if you're starting to, and board Panola are insisting on the same density ratio there, nobody is going to buy an apartment in some of these areas. So, uh, And it's not the product the market wants. So there has to be a, a very con text-driven um, approach to this um, from, from the planning piece. But I, I mean, I agree. I mean, if we, we can, it's not Charlie's decentralisation, but I mean, if we can get a more balanced piece, and part of that might be through remote working, part you know, or working hubs uh, and a different approach to working, equally off-site construction. If off-site construction was being built in Leitrim or somewhere there, as long as you get road access to this and you're actually creating jobs locally, um, you help balance out the skills shortage we have. I mean, the offsite construction is something that absolutely needs to be supported by government. Um, through the, I know the LDA have um, ambitions to do that um, because it's we're a very small market. We've done our own uh, in property industry Ireland. We did our own um, studies on this, and it's all to do with the quantum in the market. And it's very, very difficult if you've got. Uh, a uh, set supply of, well, I know I'm doing 5,000 units this year, then you could maybe start getting the factory up there. We're quite a small piece that needs to be kind of like, um, you know, like, like Ireland Inc. that's coming around to do this. But if you got that type of spread, then perhaps we're doing, because we've got, we do have a lot of landmass and we have a beautiful country and it has to be developed sustainably. It can't just be ribbon development. It cannot be just, you know, the yeah, um, bungalow bliss everywhere. Um, so, and, and then if you've got that, you have the communities where you can build the skills, you build the infrastructure, you take it there. But but I think a lot of it's down to the fact that it's so politically connected um, planning and development um, that it's what wins the next vote as opposed to long-term sustainable plans. I mean, the, I mean, I remember, I don't know if it was around about 2002 or four or something like that, that they had this... Um, uh, you know the, the the development plan, the national development plan came out at the time, uh, and and hot in its heels there was this decentralisation came out, and it was like forget the national development plan. This one's where all the development, you know, everyone's going yeah. to chase. Yeah. Um, so look, we're too small a country to be uh, to not have joined up thinking really. Uh, well, I can tell you, I'm I'm showing my age here, but I was living in North Kerry. In, very early in my career when the decentralization plan started to be rolled out and that huge d giant revenue building um in the <laughs> center of this tiny village um yeah. I, and it was it was just a, a, a ghost building 
for almost a decade. So, you know, look, uh, uh, I think some of our language, we need to be really careful about the language we use as well. Yeah. Nobody ever wants to hear decentralization again. But before we finish up, um, you know, I, I, I'm conscious that we're running close uh, close to the end of our time. And frankly, um, Jim, I could talk to you all day. But offsite construction, you know, you mentioned, you, you said earlier on, you know, you, you've referred a couple of times to the need for us to embrace uh, offsite and other modern methods of construction. You've also referred to your clients as knowledgeable. So tell us where is the where is the disconnect happening? Um, is it a supply issue in Ireland, or where? Why is our take up of offsite so low? Well, it's it, it's a supply and it's cost issue uh, on the site. Now there are different methods of offsite construction. Um, I mean, it doesn't all have to be the, you know, each of the units are craned in and each of the units come on, and it can be even timber framed or it can be you know component uh, size piece, but it's. It's an investment piece, you know. I mean, there, there's so many components that go into the the cost of a house. Um, you know, and the SCSI have had some fantastic reports out there that put everything down and break it down into that. What's a non-construction cost element, whether it be tax or land or profits or fees or all of this type of thing that you take. So there's only so many things that can be chipped away at, and it, until um, offsite construction becomes more of the norm, it is um, a premium product. Now, I think you'll find off-site construction will take more in dense areas um, where it's all about program, it's all about delivery, delivery to site. Um, as other things, um, you know, as, as, as the cost of construction goes up as well, I think there'll be some equaliser to the off-site piece. There's a massive investment to start it. I mean, I know a number of the, the large uh, uh, contractor bodies have really invested quite heavily in this area. Um, and I know... They've invested heavily, but they've also invested heavily by effectively acquiring the supply chain, yes. which locks up. Uh, which shuts it out to everyone else, exactly. But, they, they, you know, they've got to run their business. I mean, I know uh, Homes England uh, over in the UK, um, uh, you know, are, are doing some fantastic work. And they've got, um, they've actually got um, a positive kind of bias towards offsite construction now. And they're accepting the fact there's a premium on this. And they're partnering up with the likes of Urban Splash and other um, bodies to try and deliver very large projects. I mean, there's a very large project. They're, they're developing a lot of the, the old World War II air bases um, around Cambridge and such, um, where there's 20,000 units uh, can, can come into that. And they're, they're using that element of scale. Uh, and, and I think they're, they're, they're even marked up with one of the Japanese com companies where they've got a long his legacy and history in doing it. So... I suppose it's like many things. We'll probably look across the water and take the, the good and the bad and see what mistakes were made as well. But um, it will come. It will come no, no, no different to me. You know, I, I don't use a razor blade on tracing paper anymore. Uh, you know, um, 30 years later, it will happen. That's fair. And look, final question. You know, over your 30-year career, I, I'm sure you've learned lots, the hard way and the easy way. But your advice for anybody coming into the industry? Well, I think have a passion for it. Be curious is really important. Um, you know, I, I think it's a really easy thing to do if you enjoy working with people. Uh, now, there is huge frustrations around projects, as you can imagine, tensions and various things. So I, I think you, you have to enjoy interaction with people. Um, through there, learn from people, listen to people as well, um, and that works both ways. I mean, you, you might have a graduate coming out that you can learn loads from uh, that they're taking taking through. Um, I, I, you know, I tend to uh, trust people first 
rather than the other way around uh, and, 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 and see. But um, I think if, if everybody, um, you know, works together in their industry, we've got some brilliant people here. We really have, you know, in, in the Irish industry. I mean, I, I, lo- I love the size of the Irish. It's small. It's a village and it's, it's really enjoyable. Uh, so it's, it's important to be, you know, be true to, to, to what you believe in uh, as well. And as I say, be passionate. Um, and, and don't, you know, don't take the easy option by by uh, throwing the blame around or any of that because it'll come around, it'll come around again, and you'll be at the receiving end. So uh, working with people, you know, uh, without being, uh, without without losing the eloquence, you know, I I always remember very early in my career, my background was in law, learning that um, be mm. careful of the tolls you step on on the way up; they might be connected to. Yeah. Whatever you have to kiss on the way down, and I think in Ireland that is just particularly true. In and it's immediate. It's not like it's not like like I, I, I used to say. I worked in London at a very junior level in uh, for seven years, and you might work for a client and then never see that client again, or never you know yeah. London was that scale, but in Ireland you absolutely will. So yeah. your reputation and your trust is everything. Yeah. Yeah, I, look, I, I think that's a really strong note to finish on and, and some great advice. That's it from Breaking Ground on iProperty Radio. My thanks to Jim Gallagher of Aldo Architects this week. I look forward to a tour of the Camden Street offices. Um, you can get in touch with the show on social media at iProperty Radio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. My thanks to the Hear Me Roar production team and to Luke Delaney on sound for Dublin South FM. Until next time, thank you for listening.